This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, israelnationalnews.com. And last but not least, in collaboration with Australian Jewish News, check them out at ajn.timesofisrael.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit 2njb.com slash donate. Most people don't hang flags above their beds, but Ariel Karlinski isn't most people. Above his bed, throughout his childhood and well into his, in, into his high school years, Ariel hung the red flag of the Soviet Union, its yellow sickle and hammer watching over him every night. Until one bright day, he decided to take it down, fold it up, and tuck it away, along with his strong beliefs in the communist system. Ariel Karlinsky is an economist at the Kohelet Policy Forum, a conservative think tank dedicated to, quote, secure Israel's future as the nation state of the Jewish people, to strengthen representative democracy, and to broaden individual liberty and free market principles in Israel. Ariel joins us today to talk about how a communist became a capitalist. Thank you so much. It's, it's not like an exaggeration, right, to say that you were, you were communist in your beliefs. No, it's not, it's not an exaggeration. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, second, sure. second thing is, uh, what's nice about my conversion to capitalism is that I joined a pretty prestigious group of people, such as uh, Milton Friedman and uh, Thomas Sowell, and a lot of other people who also uh, co-wrote a book together called The God That Failed, how they all transitioned from communism and socialism to capitalism. So, you know, you, you're born a Marxist and you become a conservative over time. So, this is but, Martin Friedman and uh, Thomas Sowell wrote yeah. this book? Ah, no, really? it's not Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell. It's, about, it's a bunch of intellectuals, uh, American and English. I can't remember their names. But Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell are examples of really great capitalist economists who, yeah. are all, uh, cons- who all consider themselves Marxists. At so. some point. I knew Thomas Sowell. I didn't know Milton Friedman started out as a, commu- as a Marxist uh, in his beliefs. I think he was less of a Marxist than what Sol was, but definitely more of a Marxist than what he turned out to be. So yeah, there was a transition. Wow. So, so tell us a bit about like how it all started. Why, why did you grow up? Why did you have a flag of the, of the Soviet Union above your bed? Um, because I was a communist. Um, and the reason, but, you know, how did that yeah. happen? <laughs> End of story. Yeah. Um, why, why I was a communist. Um, I was a pretty, I don't know, average, you know, I don't know, teenager in northern Tel Aviv. Um, Say and, no more. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and, and back, in the, back in the day, the internet was slow, and you had to, <laughs> and you had to, I just saw a caption, you had to, remember when you had to murder a robot to get <laughs> yeah. to the internet? And you and if someone called, exactly. you had to murder a robot and tear his heart out so that his death would power your internet or something like that. <laughs> exactly, right? and 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 you would distinguish between rich and not so rich people by those who had a dedicated phone line for the internet. They were. I had a friend who had a dedicated phone line for the internet, and I would go to his house almost every day to play Counter Strike. Beep beep. beep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
No, yeah. but because <laughs> we all remember that for for the those who don't know, back in the day, if you had one line for both internet and phone call landline, then if someone called your house, you would be disconnected. Yeah, that yeah. would would be a tragedy. That's it. <laughs> The porn you were watching would immediately stop. It was awful. Right, and it was four <laughs> pixels anyway. Yeah. So, okay. So back then, communist porn was the best porn. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, back then there wasn't, uh, or maybe there was, but no one knew about it. There wasn't Wikipedia. There wasn't all the amazing amount of information you have on the internet today. But there were a thing called, there was a thing called books, okay? And there was also a, a series of books called the Encyclopedia, such as the Encyclopedia Britannica, which we had at the home, and a bunch of other books. And I was a pretty, I know, bored teenager, and I read them, and I read them, and I, you know, I saw the news, and I read the the paper. My father was and still is a dedicated um, uh, subscriber to Haaretz, and I would mm-hmm. read Haaretz every day after he did, and I would look at the world, and I saw what I perceived as great injustices, that the world is not run as it should be. There are people who are very, very poor in Israel and beyond Israel. And what I learned from Encyclopedia Britannica and other books is that the system that we have today uh, is called capitalism. And apparently there were a bunch of guys in the late uh, 18th, 19th century who came up with a better system called socialism, which would fix all the ills of capitalism. And I was sold. So essentially, yes, the I call it communist porn because if you would look at a definition, maybe even on today on Wikipedia, in the encyclopedia of capitalism, communism, it would be something like capitalism is a system for private gain and the oppression of the, of the proletariat. And communism is a system where everybody joins together and help build a better and more just and equal society. Maybe not communism, but socialism. Ah, we'll okay. definitely ha- get that kind of now now you can't throw all the praise at communism so you have to No 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 you know. okay so that's that's a common that's a common misconception um the original name of the Bolshevik communist party is the Social Democrat Party uh-huh. okay so socialism comes before marxism marx then develops uh, the capital and the communist manifesto communism is uh, if you want to define it the, be- the best definition that I know of communism is this is the political system to gain socialism. So socialism is that the public owns the means of production and property. And communism is the way to achieve socialism. Okay. So and the- there are other ways to achieve so- socialism. There's the democratic way. But what we think of today as social democrats. So we think about the nice uh, Scandinavian people and um, so the Social Democrat Party of, like, say, Germany, which was part of the main opposition to Nazism in Germany, it wasn't about, okay, we need a system like today, but we're going to increase transfer payments and welfare payments. No, it was, we're going to win the election, and after we win the election, we're going to nationalize everything and abolish capitalism. So there was the democratic way to achieve socialism. We're going to need the people to vote us in, and then we're going to mandate it. And there was the communist method of achieving socialism, which was we're going to have a revolution by a revolutionary vanguard, as Lenin called it, and achieve socialism. Because democracy itself is a bourgeoisie and a capitalist uh, structure. So we cannot use it to topple it. 
Yeah. So, so that's so, the basic. Socialism is the economic uh, um, uh, system. Exactly. And communism is a political manifestation of it, or a po- political attempt to achieve that economic. Exactly. And system. the name of the communist Russia was United Soviet Socialist Republic. Yeah. And all the Eastern Bloc countries, they were all Sov- socialist republics. They were all socialists. Yeah. Because the state owned the means of production. In order to be fair to Marx and other communists, this was supposed to be a transition period. So there was supposed to be a transition period where the state owns everything. And then through time, what develops is sort of like sort of like a communist anarchy. So there is no state. The ideal communist system has no state at the end, but it does have a very powerful state somewhere in between. No country, no so- socialist or communist country has ever achieved that, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's, it's the dream is anarchy. They always it's, blame it's the very, leaders. It's right? very rational, right? That, that you would have a very strong state and then it would somehow cease to exist. That makes sense. That makes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's just, you know, that's how states well, at, operate. At least for a child, uh, eight years old, how, no. how old? No. Um, 12? 12, 13, It made 14, sense for like a 12-year-old. Okay, so then what happened? You read about it, you thought, ooh. So I read about it, and I, I was convinced, because like I said, what we have today is not good, and there's an alternative and a better alternative. And I was also fascinated by the fact that it was, um, that it was implemented. Um, and then I and I read a bit about why it stopped uh, functioning, and most of what I read was from a very let's call it leftist perspective. Uh, it was uh, there was a there was the Cold War with the United States, and the United States sent the CIA and agents to manipulate the people, and, <laughs> and there was a bunch of mistakes on the way. But essentially, it was very good, or was just on the tipping point of that. That utopia. That was in Haaretz or in the Encyclopedia Britannica, <laughs> um, where you read that. That was in. Mo- I think it's in most popular writing about socialism and communism. I think even. I think even today, um, a lot of people see capitalism as sort of a compromise. It's what we have, but it's not so good. And there's the, uh, there's the ideal of communism and socialism. So so yeah, um, it's Haaretz are not very socialist. I have to say, for their defense, they're probably on the Israeli spectrum. They're probably one of the most I don't know, right wing economics wise. Um, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very mixed bag. I wouldn't call them communists. Um, but most people are writing, as I said, is this is this is what we have. It's not great. There was another alternative which was great, but it failed for some undisclosed reason. Okay, so what can you do about your interest now? When you're you're twelve, you discovered, you fell in love. What can you do to implement it in your life? implement communism i don't know like how like, did it express itself pursue. in your like how did you okay you were convinced you know how do you go from being convinced convinced to having a flag above your bed like that's kind of a jump right um or are you just kind of like i ha- i had a i had a lot of friends who were uh, staunch Likud supporters and a lot of friends who were staunch Havoda supporters and most of the merits and because northern tel aviv um, and I didn't really jive with any of it, so I didn't really like Ehud Barak, and I didn't really like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. It's amazing that these people are still in our lives. We're talking yeah. 20, year, 20 years ago, yeah? Yeah. Um, and I think I did want some sort of an identity, 
and communism was uh, was was like a nice a nice one. It was also very very niche, right? So, like I said, a lot of my friends are are liberals and merits, and and a, a tiny fraction are Likud and a bit are Havoda. Like almost no one's a communist. But did you go to like meetings and conventions and? So so there is a there is a. Um, youth Were you approached by the KGB to be a spy? There is a youth group in Israel. There's a there's a communist party called Maki, Miflaga Communist Israelit. It's a very old party. It's been here since before the establishment of the state of Israel. And there's a famous quote by Lenin, which Israeli communists just love that. Um, You can't have Zionism and communism at the same time. It's like trying to sit between two chairs. Okay? So the communist- Lenin said that, uh, apparently, according uh, to the legend. Yes. Um, so okay. there's, a very, there's a very old uh, communist party in Israel. They used to be pretty strong, like a lot of communist parties around the world. Now they're next to nothing. They're mostly strong in the Arab community. They're part of Hadash. Uh, and they have a youth group called Banki, which literally means Youth of the Communist Party of Israel. Uh-huh. Um, and I had a friend in high school who is the son of a very prominent Israeli communist, which I will not name. Uh, and he tried to convince me several times to go to meetings, and I was always on the, on the threshold of coming, but I, nev- but I never did come because also that's when kind of the doubts started. In my mind mm, I see now you said like most is mo there aren't there are hardly any communists but communists perhaps but as we mentioned before would you say that in Israel I mean it has strong roots so there's a lot of socialism I mean both in the, the labor party and merits and, and on the left good. side in general and even in even in the right side yeah even on the right side there's it feels that Israel is like has strong socialist roots that it's ha- hard to uproot Yeah, so in, in, in 2011, Glenn Beck, you know who Glenn Beck yes. is? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he came here. The silver, he has, he's got such majestic silver hair, it's hard <laughs> not to. So he came here for like a make freedom freer again <laughs> something. Yeah. Uh, you remember there was a thing called the Tea Party? It was, yeah. They were against rhinos, so re- against Republicans in name only, because Republicans are elephants. Uh-huh. So they were against rhinos. And there was a large Tea Party movement, which you can define, I think, as like more to the right than the, what the Republican Party is. And they came to Israel. And uh, me and a couple of other people had a chat with them. It was when I already wasn't a communist, when I wasn't a communist. Um, and they came and we had, a nice, we had a nice discussion. And one of the things that I wanted to hear from them is, How do you talk to people about uh, capitalism? Because in my eyes, in the state, it's much easier because you can always tell them something like, that's what the founders would have wanted back then. It yeah. was amazing. Not for most people, but it was amazing. Today you say that in the States. <laughs> that's not going to win anybody. Exactly. But, but you can... You, you, but the... There's something in the gene. Exa- in for, the exactly. US Freedom genes. is something very basic... Uh, in the American, I don't know, hardened soul of the nation. And here in Israel, it's much, much, much more, let's call it socialist. I would call it statist because it's not exactly the same thing. But um, as the Tocqueville said that in France, when something goes wrong, you, you write a letter to Paris, to the government. In Israel, it's exactly the same. Something is not okay. 
and the minister and the prime minister and the uh, IDF, everybody need to do something. And in America, if something goes wrong, okay, screw this, I'm going to fix it myself. Or I'm going to get a bunch of my guys together and we're going to lift that barn. And in Israel, you need all the permits and you need the government to come and lift that barn. As my friend says in America, it sounds like a personal problem. <laughs> Whenever you say anything, you have an issue, sounds like a personal problem. Exactly. In, in, Israel, in Israel, everything's a public concern. Yeah. Let, let, let's, let's say it like that. If we want to maybe put the boundary somewhere in today's terms, because no one, I hope, is trying to have a communist revolution. Um, the question is where, <laughs> where the personal public... And border is drawn and uh-huh. in Israel in Israel it's much more to the public right. side and in the state it's much more to the personal side although of course these things they Israel, vary through time if you have hemorrhoids it's the government's fault <laughs> yeah. you go on channel 2 news and yell <laughs> about how the health ministry hasn't done enough it's true though it's true they yeah. aren't they aren't tackling the problem of hemorrhoids as you as you guess guys uh, Ariel is not gonna get much of an opposition in this episode <laughs> like he's not gonna be challenged to No, uh, we, we will try. We will try. try. We will try. But let, let's, let, let's we'll get, finish when we get to Yeah, when we get to the ideological, uh, the, 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 you know, when we start talking economics, then we'll, we'll, we'll try and throw some uh, hardballs at you. But okay. back to, to your personal story, what, like, how did you smarten up? Okay, so I, 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 I read more. There was material on the internet and beyond it about what life in, in Russia and what it uh, was actually like and what the Soviet Union was actually like. And I had, I had this amazing book that today just smells like dust called A uh, Hundred Great People or Personalities. So it was just like a list, a long list of a hundred people who shaped the world. So it would be like uh, Genghis Khan and John of Arc and, and Moses. And, and for several people, it will be like two, three pages long. And for several people, it will be about uh, like tens of pages. Not a very long book. And the book, of course, had uh, great people of the 20th century, like, uh, such as Hitler and uh, Lenin and Stalin. And for me, Stalin was the man who made the USSR a powerhouse. Great again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great at the start. He was the original yeah. make it great. And so I, and, 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 and for, a, for a long time, my perception of him was he was a strong man who did what he needed to do to achieve the dream of communism. And, uh, and also, which was very important to me, being Jewish, he, he, he defeated Hitler. Yeah, so without, without the USSR, we, I, would, I would say we would all be speaking German, but we would probably not be speaking at all. Yeah. Um, so I read about Stalin. Um, and the book wasn't very, very deep about Stalin, but a couple of things made me... Mm, cringe. Cringe is a very 21st century world, word. I don't know if I cringed. I, I don't know. I, I, was, I was uneasy about it. Um, and I read some more. And I started to get really an, an, uneasy, an, an uneasy feeling. So basically the story of uh, Stalin, I think, can be summarized in he killed uh, both directly with like, specific orders. First he got born. He was born. Yeah. yeah. Then. Yeah. Every, everybody gets born. Uh, that's, that's, that's not important. Then he killed. <laughs> so he killed an astounding number of people. 
in the what I read back then I think it was it was in the hundreds thousands it's a book from 1970 or 80 right okay so it was today we know more yes exactly so today we know a lot more but even back then uh, after Stalin uh, was gone uh, also I highly recommend the movie the death of Stalin it's a great mm, film yeah. British film amazing yeah. funny as hell sad very sad but funny as hell yeah. Um, so after he died, there was a, a process of de-Stalinization and the crimes, let's call it the crimes of Stalin came to light. Um, but that book, I think, was written a bit before that. But today we know he killed millions. Exactly. So tens I was... A, I was tens of millions. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a touchy-feely, squeamish guy. You know, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands also upset my stomach. So imagine if I, if I would have known at the start that he killed millions... But I, I saw that he killed a lot of people, and not just, you know, Nazis, okay? And a bunch of, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of communist people. It's still, I think I have to say, it's still rather unclear whether he directly di- uh, ordered the killings of all of these people, or some of them just died because of communist uh, policy, let's call it like that. But he was very indifferent to it, to say the least. Okay, okay but so- that we knew. That we know. I didn't know that okay. back then. <laughs> I, had a, I had me and my friend, we, had, we were like three or four communist friends. Uh, hi, Dudu. Uh, I'm going to send him a link to that. Okay. Me, and, me and him bought another friend a t-shirt with Stalin on it. Wow. So like the wow. Che Guevara shirt was nothing yeah, to us. Not, yeah. Che Guevara was a nothing burger. <laughs> Stalin, Stalin, Stalin controlled millions. Yeah. Okay. So when I think about it today, I, 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 I realize it's, it's, it's exactly the same like giving someone a Hitler t-shirt. Yeah. So, it's, so that's really cringy. Yeah. So we liked wow. Stalin. I'm Lenin. We'll get, we'll get to Lenin. So I read about, so I read, I read about Stalin. I got a very uneasy feeling. And I turned to this friend who was my uh, spiritual mentor in the ways of communism because he was a, a diehard communist. His father was a diehard communist. His father before him was a diehard communist. And it's almost like a family means something. It's very strange. Um, <laughs> and, and I asked him, I told him, you know, Stalin, yeah, he defeated Hitler and that's, that's nice, but he killed so many people. Why? And he told me, no, 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 yes, yeah. Stalin, Stalin, that was a mistake. It's very unfortunate. Also, he wasn't really a communist. He was a monster. The man that you should follow in his guiding light is Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. That's, that's our guy. And I was like, okay, that's a good answer. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Okay, so I went home and and kept being a communist. But then my boredom got the better of me, and I read about Lenin. And uh, th- that's start- where you made your mistake. Exactly. You start Never- reading be- before you. No, or you should stop reading. <laughs> always stop. Yeah, stop reading is always the, the the best answer. So I read about Lenin, and Lenin's story is, I think, also much more interesting and than- unknown. Yes, it's much more unknown because he reigned for a very short amount of time. I don't remember when he died now, but I think it was like 1928. So like for 10, 12 years, something like that. Stalin was around since then. And Lenin. until No, oh, since 28, uh, Stalin was okay. around. But Stalin was around time. for at least 1952, I think. 
better check check like Wikipedia and see. Yeah, he died in 52. Okay, so so uh, man, I was right. That was good. Yeah. And, and Lenin 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 died very early after the October Revolution. So a lot more of his story is about how he came to power. And Stalin basically just took over the Soviet Union. He was an important part of the communists taking over Russia. But Lenin had a, a much more rich history of being in France and in Switzerland, being in exile, being an agent of the, of the Germans in World War I. And so it was very interesting to read about him. And I, and, I, and, I read, and I read and I read and I read and I read. And I saw that he also was responsible for the murder of, of hundreds of thousands of people with the great, uh, for example, with the Great Red Terror. Uh, of the Russian Civil War. Meaning? Meaning the executions of a lot of people, sometimes for the most minor offenses, such as leaving for themselves a single bushel of wheat. Okay? Um, Trotsky was one of his main... Uh, also, Trotsky. Uh, we think of Trotsky as like that good guy who... Jewish... Was I, I, no, I mean, like, no one thinks of him that way. I, I mean, I don't. There's a famous song. Wow, I can't remember the band. Oh, it's The Stranglers. Um, no more. Uh, where are all the heroes? Whatever yeah, happened yeah, to yeah, all the yeah, heroes? Yeah, yeah. Leon Trotsky got an ice pick. Yeah. Okay. So Trotsky was Trotsky. If you wanted to be a communist, leftist, socialist, but be like on the sophisticated side and avoid. Avoid the blood on the hands of Stalin. You would say you were Trotskyist. So that yeah, was the Trotsky thing to be. also murdered. I mean, exactly. he was the exactly. so Trotsky, guy holding the gun in the exactly. Right so there. so Lenin gave the orders, and Trotsky committed the orders, and Trotsky also said that he could commit more orders, and and basically part of Stalin's um, Soviet communist policy was was directly from Trotsky. Um, but like I said, Lenin, and Lenin was Stalin also responsible. Did to Trotsky afterwards, right? Okay. So, 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 so Lenin was also one murderous uh, son I, of a gun. Can I curse? Okay, mm-hmm. okay, son of a gun, and <laughs> and that made me uneasy about the whole thing. But then how I, old are you by then? Like seventeen, eighteen, okay, something like that. So, like the end of uh, senior year, and so I turn again to my trusty communist spiritual advisor. Do do. No, it's not Dudu. Oh, okay. <laughs> but Dudu knows who I'm talking about. Okay. And Dudu is the guy that we bought the Stalin shirt for. Okay. I don't know if he still has it. <laughs> I know he lives in Rhode Island, I think, so I okay. hope he doesn't have it. But I don't know. Yeah, it's not a good place to wear a <laughs> Stalin shirt. <laughs> um, okay. I'll bring you more water. Thanks. Um, I keep going. I so stop. you go to yeah, your you okay. You go to your spiritual. Advisor, I go to my spiritual guide. Spiritual guide. And he tells me. And and I tell him, you know, Len was also very murderous, but the he killed only, let's say, like a hundred thousand people because he just didn't reign for so long. Yeah. Yeah. He, he his life was cut short. Yeah. And he told me, yes, that's true, but it was for a dream, it was for a utopia, so it's okay. Worth it. Hashtag exactly. worth it. <laughs> totally hashtag <laughs> worth it. Um. And I said, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not that easy about killing people for my goal because let's let's remember why did I become a communist in the first place? I said this there was grave injustice in the world. 
we can maybe we can have a better system to fix it. If what you're telling me is for the better system to happen, we need to kill, which is the the highest form of injustice you can do to a person, and we have to kill a lot, not just, you know, I don't know, m murderous Nazis. I'm very uneasy about the whole concept, and I think it needs some reevaluation. I, I didn't, but I didn't immediately turn, I don't know, capitalist. I was, let's call it, politically agnostic for a while. I was like, okay, these utopias, they are all uh, way out there, and I'm gonna stop reading, <laughs> like you said. <laughs> I can't how, do how long of... did that last? Like two or three years until really? until like 2011, uh, with the whole uh, Occupy Rothschild uh, protests. Yeah, we had Daphne Leaf guys on the podcast. Ah, yeah, she, she's a. I think I think out of I a lot of people say that. I I saw uh, speeches and writings of basically all the. I was in Rothschild too, and not in the tent. Just but... Ethan, can you give a recap okay. of what we're talking about? 2011, the, uh, 2011, the social social protests of 2011 here in Israel. Basically, tons of people went out to the streets. Young, young people. Uh, set up tents and Rothschild. And Biggest and demonstrations in the history. Yeah, there was at one point the March of the Million, which probably wasn't a million, but uh, I think something like uh, two, three, four hundred thousand yeah. people hit the streets, demanding lower cost of living, social justice, social justice, lowering the cost. We can of, get to that. I'm not sure that they meant social justice. Yeah. We can get to that later. But eventually, they did uh, succeed in lowering the price of uh, cottage cheese. So that was uh, was good. <laughs> good <laughs> so, so yeah it's uh people I love my cut you can you can you can you can have an entire discussion just on the social protest of 2011 and there are people who have uh, written entire books and uh, phds about about it i think out of all the people who led the protests which was uh, daphne leaf Itzik shmuli and um, shafir and another bald guy which i just can't remember Regev his name Contis. Okay. Out of all these people, I <laughs> he think... has a list of them where he yeah. crosses them out with <laughs> lipstick <laughs> in his room. <laughs> I think out of all these people, Daphne is like the kindest, nicest, most honest person out of all of them. All the rest, they were good, like, let's say, political operatives. They got exactly what they wanted out of the protests. And Tav Shafir may be less so today. But Daphne, uh, she really wanted to know. So she, uh, I feel like she was kind of like me. She saw something which she uh, considered a great injustice. And she wanted to fix it. And she didn't really know how, why, what to do. Uh, Stav Shafir, Itzik Shmuli, all the rest, they were very sophisticated political operatives who used the protest to jumpstart their careers. Mm -hmm. And Daphne Capitalist. was and still is. <laughs> exactly. Lever leveraging. <laughs> And Daphne was, and I think still is, she's still kind of searching. She doesn't really know. I don't think you can put an easy label on her like you can put on the rest of them, let's yeah. just say. Yeah. So you were, uh, um, like, you were, you joined the social protests. You were there no, on the I ground? No, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was those annoying people trying to convince the people in the tents that what they were doing was wrong. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so already at that point you were kind of... Yeah, so, so like, very shortly before that, I had a couple of friends who had a guitar store in Florentine, and they were libertarians, which, like, I don't know, let's call it extreme right-wing capitalism or something. Um, Americans, of course, because no one else is a libertarian. <laughs> um, and 
then the convincing started started there and, and I was in the army back then and I read some I read some Milton Friedman and I read some Frederick Hayek what which are both like mega superstars of the capitalist conservative movement and Hayek's best book is his most shallow book but his best book is the road to serfdom which really for me it was a really important book because it explained to me why communism achieved what it did that it was not like a, a mistake of history it's not it's not that Stalin was a monster I mean he was a monster but you have to ask yourself what is the political and economic system that enabled such a man to have to exert such an influence such a corrupting influence and 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 achieve such an amazing death toll which is a socialist statist communist system and uh, so that really for me led the way to okay now I understand why I Um, which is beyond the reasons of it okay, bridge the gap exactly. between the people the leaders and the ideology because otherwise you could easily detach you can say exactly. the ideology was great the people exactly which is which is exactly what my spiritual yeah. advisor said he was he said it was okay it was great it could have been even greater but Stalin ah, missed on that one mm-hmm. which if you're a communist that's a very convincing argument and When you read Hayek and Milton Friedman and the other people, you understand that it's sort of inherent. The system itself is so violent and the state has so much control. And that's why literally everywhere that communism or let's call it social, state socialism was, was tried resulted in unspeakable death tolls but in Cambodia a third of the population was 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 killed I, ma- I must s- stop you for a second because I wonder if if it's true in the sense that isn't like it's not the system the system only amplifies people and the people are those who are violent and cruel and when you give them such power then you see these results so maybe the the Like, you know what I'm saying? Because he's saying it's the system, it's the I'm, ideology. I'm, I'm, But the ideology is only, only a means to an end. That's for true. For people to get and powerful, we to can, become powerful. Again, we can, I guess we can take from that for, uh, segue to that from, to why I would consider myself a conservative today. But um, think about prohibition for a second. Okay. okay? Prohibition in the United States, um, prohibition on... Uh, listeners know what prohibition is yeah okay. yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. no alcohol 20s no. 20s 30s yeah late 20s exactly there's a constitutional amendment uh, which prohibits the sale and I think also the consumption of alcohol except for a few um, I don't know tiny caveats exactly so for like religious purposes and stuff like that and so basically if, you can drink alcohol in the late 20s early 30s in the United States for about 10 years uh, look basically you No, basically you can, but, but it's you, illegal, but it's illegal. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> so prohibition was also the period which, which created organized crime in the States. It's Al Capone. It's all these people that we know of from movies and books. And so prohibition was a system of laws against the sale and, and uh, sale, consumption and production of alcohol. It didn't turn nice, good, gentle people into criminals. Al Capone was probably a murderous person. A hell of a guy sociopath yeah exactly without prohibition what prohibition did was enabled him to uh, get a lot of power because alcohol was something that ordinary people really really wanted 
he and people like you and me who want to stay above the law and not hurt anybody, mostly, we wouldn't get into that business. So it becomes a very, very lucrative business. And Al Capone comes. He does what he needs to do. The, the demand is still there, the demand for alcohol. He gains it's a lot. higher. Of, yeah, some might say it was even higher because now it was hard to get and stuff like that. He gains a lot of power and he utilizes it to his advantage, leaving a lot of people dead. Uh, so it's not... So a system can take very, very nasty people and uh, put them on the top with a lot of power. It's the same, You can say the same thing about, I think, maybe uh, drug criminalization today. You don't have to be a Colombian cartel who kills hundreds of people each year to sell a product. The fact that it's illegal makes it so that the only people in this business who are willing to incur the costs of arrests and living beyond the law are people who are people you don't really don't want to mess with. So the communist system was a system in which it really uh, incentivizes cruel people to rise to the top. Stalin, by the way, rose to the top by killing all of his uh, opposition, even inside the Communist Party. Yeah. So in Israel, I think, I hope Bibi's not listening. Bibi, please don't kill other people in the Likud. But when you have a totalitarian system, just like uh, Hitler did the, the Night of the Long Knives, the way to get rid of, of the opposition is to kill them. And the way to get rid of those pesky peasants who are not willing to provide enough wheat for the workers is to kill them. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he had that amount of power is the fault of the system. Under a better, or maybe let's say capital system, I don't think he would have been a nice guy. That's a good question. It's like, what if, what if Hitler would have joined art school? <laughs> what would he have turned out to be? Yeah. He, wa- he was in art school, right? No, or, he failed. Or what if, ah, yeah, but he was what, there. What if Hitler would run to the democratic uh, primaries in 2020 if he were born oh, in a different God. country? Oh, and, uh... God. Let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> I mean, let's, but, <laughs> but let's not. No, if he were born in America, you know, grew up in Cincinnati. Yeah. And uh, so, so what, yeah. are the, what are the... Uh, you said we're not going to challenge them, so I'm going to challenge okay. a little bit. I mean, it's uh-huh. not much of a challenge, but w- what is the place of the state, um, right? Where do you draw the line between the private and the public? Um, that's a very, very good question. I think that what the failure of socialism around the world and what it has shown is that most countries today or most countries that anyone would have wanted to live in Today, they're all capitalist countries. By that, I mean most property is owned by individuals or groups of individuals. You can call them corporations, you can call them firms, and you can call them um, non-governmental organizations, or I don't know how you say amutot in English. NGOs. Uh, NGO, NGO is such a tax term. Yeah. I'm talking about, you know, non-profits. Something, non-profits, yeah. So it can be Greenpeace has a lot of property, for example. Okay? Yeah. That's okay. Mm. Uh, as opposed to the, a socialist system where the state owns everything or it only owns supposedly what's called the means of production. So there's there are, except for North Korea and Cuba, and also when in Cuba it's on, uh, going down, 
there's no there are no socialist countries. China. China controls China companies like China Xiaomi. Has like well, well, like uh, what is it? Uh, orchestrated capitalism. China, right? China, like, China, is a, China is a mixed is a, is a mixed bag. I'll, they I'll do give, control I'll, the, I'll give you the big companies. With, I'll give you China with puppets that they put there, and I'll give you China. The Chinese system. China is itself, by the way, Mao also, one of the most murderous people of the 20th century. Probably even the, the most murderous of, of all because China, China, has, China has so many people and it had, had so many people for such a long time that any tiny like upheaval or drought there is just like, eh, yeah, the year 1022 was a tough year. It was, was not a good year in China because 20 million people died in the rebellion. And that's like, and that's like a half of Europe at that time yeah. so it's insane so 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 mao i think the estimates are something like 60 to 80 million people died because of can't fathom but it was numbers. for a great leap forward <laughs> exactly and guys so i i say we can have an entire discussion on china but let's let's okay. let, let's leave it so basically i think let's call it all economists all economists agree and all economies agree and all countries agree that the mm. basic system of property, the ownership of property, belongs to individuals, uh, organizations, and firms. What the state then does is it extracts a certain portion of that, of all the goods and services that all these people uh, create and have, and it supplies certain uh, goods and services to the population, such as uh, infrastructure and education and, and health and a bunch of other stuff. Now, what's important to remember is that before World War One, basically all the countries, and I'll send you later like a link to a, an amazing graph that shows the share of the economy uh, controlled by the government. So, like the share of the of the economy that the government extracts in taxes uh, across time and across uh, countries. So, the U.S. was also a bit was always on the low side of that as compared to like say France. But basically, in most countries. Taxation was an extremely limited part of the economy, something like 2, 4, 10, 12%. When we hear about draconian taxation, like in the Bible or, or uh, you know, like Robin Hood, these were the numbers, 2, 4, 6%. Tell a libertarian today that you can lower taxes to 6% of the economy and he will burst in tears and thank, and thank the Lord. This is not what's happening today. But the 20th century was the most murderous century of all human history, and it was also the most technological and bureaucratic. And with the rise of bureaucracy and warfare, um, you can extract a much larger share of the wealth, let's call it, of the economy, and provide a lot more uh, services and goods. So if, let's call it back in the old days, churches, synagogues, mosques, religious societies, communities, they took care of a lot of things that government takes care of today, such as education and, and charity. Today, governments also do that. Now, what governments need to do, I think is a very, very important question. Wait, but what about the Scandinavian countries? Okay, so Are they socialist or are they capitalist? No, they're totally capitalist. And there's a famous quote by the Danish uh, finance, uh, minister of finance when uh, Bernie Sanders ran, like, remember? There was a time before yeah. Corona, there was a guy called Bernie Sanders. And 2016. Exactly. And when he ran and he said, yeah, I'm a socialist. Uh, we're going to make socialism in like the, the state. It's like Denmark, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's so pretty the, good, actually. Yeah. Thank you. 
Thank you. It's Jewish. You can always, you can always, you can always have a good imitation of a Jewish. You can always know find the Jewish Bernie guy. Sanders inside I'm, of you. I'm basically imitating Larry David, imitating yeah. imitating Sanders. So that that's that always works. And the Danish finance minister, he said, uh, Mr. Sanders, uh, please don't call it like call us like that. We're capitalists. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. So uh, being very polite because he's Danish. So the 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 what we call the Scandinavian country or the social democratic countries. Their basic system is capitalist. So people and firms owned, own uh, own property and own the means of production. But they're very redistributive. Exactly. The Scandinavian, if, say, in Israel, the, the state takes about 40%. Again, that's a huge number. At 40%. the highest level. Yeah. The highest income tax bracket in Israel. No, I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about income taxes. I'm talking about, let's, uh, let's say Israel produces... Uh, Israeli farmers produce 100 tomatoes, okay? So back in the old days, the government would come and take four tomatoes and there would be riots, okay? Today, the government comes and takes 40 tomatoes. Why do we let them get away with it? Let's call it like that. Because we're not producing 100 tomatoes. We're producing billions and trillions of tomatoes. So taking a 40% of that, it's not that big of a deal. We can still have a very high uh, standard of living, even with the government taking so much of it. So in the Scandinavian, if in Israel it's about 40%, in the Scandinavian countries it's something like 50%. Now in Israel you also have to remember that we have a lot of security costs, which the Scandinavian countries don't have. So uh, when you compare what's called civilian expenditure, which is all expenditure except for um, financing costs, like interest rates, and uh, security costs, in Israel it's something like 35%, and in the Scandinavian countries it's almost 50 because they have zero security costs so they redistribute a lot of the a lot of a lot of the wealth so you can think about it sort of like they have bill gates there they have they have ikea for example yeah and they take a larger share of the of the profits there than what the u.s takes from microsoft mm -hmm. and they redistribute it either through paying people directly okay so they just give you an allowance sort of like child allowance here in israel or they provide a lot of services or better quality services such as education. So that, but so that's very socialist. So, no, so I mean the difference there is that the the individuals private there's private ownership of property, but then there's redistribution. So what? Why? Why not have a system like that? Why not have a total redistribution system so you can? So before 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 this point, I'm saying why this why the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Soviet Union, was a win for capitalism because you have to remember that. Um, even though I came into communism and socialism focusing on the part of the equality, this was not the main goal of the socialists and communists. The main goal of the socialists and communists was, was wealth, was prosperity. They said that capitalism, where each person owns some things, is a chaotic system in which production is irrational. And they discovered something called socialism, which is a scientific way of enhancing production. So you can have prosperity. Okay. The plan was, with the state controlling everything, and there would be no competition, and competition just ruins things. We can all focus all our energies on our shared prosperity, and we can achieve prosperity, and that prosperity would also be shared equally. Okay. So, but the concept of prosperity was almost completely abandoned, even by today's leftists. They all focus on the redistributive part. Okay, so they have accepted basically capitalism and free markets 
as the tools for creating wealth and prosperity, but they're not on board with the redistributive aspects of capitalism, wherein if you have a great product, service, uh, talent, company, talent, luck, uh, inherited millions and billions of dollars, that's what you get. Okay, so they're against that part, or they want to, let's say, um, smooth it over a bit with the redistributive system. But the system itself e is still capitalist. the playing field. Exactly. You can, you can so, call it like that. So where does, again, going back to the trying to challenge, where does the free market fail, or does it? The free market um, fails when there are what's called public goods. So public goods is a concept in economics. Uh, it doesn't mean any good that is owned by the public. So like a bench or a park. A, in Israel, we call it Gan Tziburi, a public park. This is not a public good. A public good is a very special kind of good or product in economics. Um, can I talk a bit of like economics in here? Yeah, yeah uh, go ahead. Okay. So, it's good. I'm studying for a microeconomics test. So this is like review. Where? Open University. Okay. With Dro Goldberg? No, right now it's, I mean, I've just started. So Oh, okay. Uh, you should, if, if you can take courses with Dro Goldberg, you should take. He's an economic historian and a good friend of mine, and he's, he's very good. Um, and he teaches at the, the Open University. So in economics, goods have, uh, let's call it like properties. So just like that beer bottle is green, you can say that a certain good is, uh, for example, normal. A normal good means that when you get richer, you want to buy more of it. Okay, so like, I don't know, art is a normal good. There are like, there are inferior goods. Where you get richer, you want to purchase less of it. Uh, for example, uh, public transportation, mm -hmm. okay, or plain bread. You, know, you notice how when you get richer, the bread gets fancier, mm -hmm. okay? That means that plain bread is an inferior good. Another two very important characteristics for a product is what's called rivalry. Rivalry means that if I take that product, consume that product, you cannot, okay? So I have an apple. If I consume that apple, you cannot consume that apple. It's mine, okay? A non-rival good is sort of like this podcast, okay? So if Yossi listens to this podcast, Mayer can also listen to this podcast, right? There's a non-rival good. We don't want Mayer to listen, but that's I not, don't know who Mayer is. It's okay. just because, yeah, we don't like Mayer. Okay. But other people can listen. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a non-rival good. Yeah. Another important characteristic is uh, excludability, right? When you have, when you know that a club is exclusive, what does it mean? Meaning only certain people can get in. Exactly. So you can, you can. Like the Mona Lisa. Exclusive club. Mona Lisa. What's the Mona Lisa? No. The Mona Lisa, the painting. The painting. No, but the Louvre, you can only get in if you pay. Okay. Not exactly. everybody can get in. Exactly. So when I think of an exclusive club, I think of. Uh, there are, you know, bars and clubs where you just walk past them and the guy says, oh, guys, you want to come in? You want to come in? That's not an exclusive club. An exclusive club is a place where if you want to come in, they're not going to let you in, okay. right? You have to be on the list or you have to be... I don't very... want to be a member of any... Exactly, like Groucho Marx yeah. said. So, that's a, so exclusive, exclusiveness or excludability means can I choose who gets this product? So if we go back to that apple, the apple is also excludable because you need to pay in the supermarket and also in order to get that apple. 
But if you think again, like about podcasts, unless you have uh, you have like Spotify and other other methods of getting of getting it only to subscribers, it, all I need is a browser or a phone, and I can access. Uh, I like and I can access the podcast. You yeah, can't tell to, me to, to. I mean, the podcast could be exclu- like exclusive, right? So Netflix, for example, or whatever. Exactly. Think. So that's a that's an entire subject. Uh, I'm I'm uh, let's call it uh, business engineering. Again, we can have an entire discussion about that. I always told the Hebrew University they should uh, ask a donor to have the Wi-Fi named after them, because that's because. All the students would see like Hoji Goldberg or something like that, uh, much better than something on a building. And uh, donations to universities <laughs> are exactly um, the types of good that you can determine who gets it. Okay. So wait. So what's a public good? A public good is a good that it's non-rival and non-excludable. Yeah. Okay. So the 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 famous classic example is radio. Okay. Radio, you need, you need a, a very, very simple, very cheap device. And if someone has a radio station that airs on, I don't know, 87.5 FM, you're going to hear that station and you don't have to pay shit. Okay? And all the other people can listen as well with their radios. The fact that you're listening to the radio doesn't mean that other people can't listen to the radio. But and, and that's radio the is a perfect example of how the free market finds creative exactly. ways to make money off of public goods. Exactly, that's what I call. That's what I call. Let's call it business engineering. So, at first, radio was the classic, classic example of a, of a public good, and the first radio was, I think, the BBC. Okay, which is a which is a which is a government owned entity corporation. But then. People and and people just like you do the podcast. People used to people used to do this thing and they called it radio. Now they call it podcast, right? Uh, and they said, "I'm investing a lot of money and effort, uh, and this is nice. This is nice for me, but I need to get some return, or else I'm not gonna really do it. I'm gonna do a lot of other things." So they fought really hard and they said, "Wait, what's in radio that is excludable and is rival? And that thing is commercials. Okay, so radio station they get their money from commercials." Because when I own a radio station, I can say who gets to be on this particular time slot. So if uh, uh, some uh, drug manufacturing company wants this time slot, some cleaning product company can't get that time slot. Mm-hmm. So it's rival. Mm-hmm. And it's excludable. I, I, uh, I can decide who and for how much money. Just like we hear every year that the Super Bowl, the commercial in the Super Bowl is going to cost, uh, the slot is going to cost a few million dollars. It's going to be 20 seconds long and all that stuff. But everybody, almost everybody can watch the Super Bowl. And there are tons of ways to watch the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So watching the Super Bowl is a public good, you can say. But the commercials are a private good. So mm-hmm. the, the, the opposite of a public good is a private good. So the basic role of the state is to provide public goods. Why? Because, uh, because people are not going to provide you with goods that they can't charge you money for it and get, let's say, reimbursed or profitable on it. But the radio, for example, exactly. they the, will provide because then they will be able to make money off exactly, the commercials. Exactly. So that, that, that just goes to show you that even, um, you know, like exact, uh, distinct uh, economic uh, science characteristics, they're good as examples, but like at all of things, they're not binary. They're sort perhaps of like a, we just don't sort of like have a spectrum. A, perhaps we just don't have a good enough 
definitions of where to draw the line because you know I start like I was saying I, I started studying and there's a there's another issue of government intervention which is externalities right I was gonna get to that yeah and they and and at the beginning it makes sense so you basically say if there's like a positive or negative influence on your production the government needs to come in and provide incentives or tax in order to make sure that you're not you know like if you're the, the first thing that popped in my head was pollution and that makes sense right. okay you know if you're dumping stuff in the river and causing you know uh, harm to, to the public the, the, the public you need to be taxed or fined or uh, or even you know uh, have uh, criminal implications right but then you get to the part of the examples in the university and they talk about bees and pollination and a guy has a bee farm next to an orchard and his bee farm is actually helping out the orchard. So the government needs to come in. And if only he knew that the bees that he was raising was helping the orchard, he would maybe produce more bees. So we need to hand him money so he'll produce. And it's like, what? What? How did we get from from negative influences to bees and orchards? Exactly. So, so when you think about what's the justification for government involvement in education, and in Israel it's very... In Israel, I think it's very extreme even compared to Scandinavian countries, especially compared to the States. There, There's basically no private education in Israel, basically none. There are like two free schools and a single college slash university, which is the Ben Tchumen Elcidia. Also, outside the cities, you are doomed to go to the school... Uh, where you like if you live in a in a village and you have two high schools in, in in your area one is inferior and one is excellent they're both public you can't choose to go like if you are they decide for you to that you go to the to the yeah. bad one and you gotta bribe your way like and and scam the government like my parents they they needed for me to go to the better high school they they had to to rent a shed shed somewhere you know <laughs> and ridiculous and pay that's why they told you they put you in a shed <laughs> in, in, a, in a different yeah. city <laughs> and then i saw these strangers there and i was like dead no but the, we have but, <laughs> we have to remember that okay free market allocates resources and services according let's uh, simplify it according to who pays okay so if we have a private high school I don't care if you're from a lot. If you want to come every day and you're able to pay, let's even say a hundred thousand shekels a year. Okay. I'm going to take you when you don't have such a system. You have to have some arbitrary allocation system run by the government and a very reasonable system is okay. So there will be sort of like registration zones or school zones or something like that. So all the people who live, all the children who live in, uh, such and such an area, they will go to school A. And the people living in such and such area, they will go to school B. Now, if things turn out... But then the school doesn't need to excel because he exactly, knows, they exactly. know that... So there's a fail... There, 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 are, there are bad incentives and we, can, and we can improve the incentives even inside a public system. So a public system doesn't need to be completely and totally a failure. Okay? You can open up registration zones. So, for example, when I went to high school in Tel Aviv... Um, they took the they took us to a bunch of a bunch of high schools and they said you can choose. So yeah, and you had bidding and stuff. Exactly, like there, there was there was bidding. Uh, you you always have 
where you have scarce resources, such as, uh, you know, um, chairs at the classroom, and more demand than, uh, than supply, you need to have some sort of allocation. Not everybody can just say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study there. By the way, one of the things that's interesting about Corona and Zoom and all, all these other things, maybe we're finding out that, yes, space is almost unlimited. So if you can choose to go to Harvard on Zoom, why would you go anywhere else? Okay, but if but if space is limited, you have to have some sort of allocation system. The public system does lack a lot of incentives, but what its proponents will say is, first of all, that it achieves some sort of equality. So if you had a private system and a good school costs a hundred thousand shekels a year, no one's going to be able to afford it except for the richest. Okay, and the other thing is, uh, like Ethan said, positive externalities. So what they say is something like that. Imagine that you're living in a society where no one knows how to read, okay? That's a much worse off society than a society where people know how to read. And preferably, of course, they all read uh, Shai Agnon and uh, they recite poetry and they know history. That's a much better society to live in. That means that you want other people to have an education. And what's the best way to have other people have something? Taxes. The government will provide Okay, just like you would like to live uh, in a place where there's good public transportation. But you can say that about, this is what I don't understand, is you can say that about almost anything. I would love to live in a society where people are well fed. I don't want to live in a society where people are starving to death. That's true. And one of the, and one of the things that, uh, let's say, turned me into a capitalist pig <laughs> is I came into communism because of injustice and because of the, poor, let's call it the the poor conditions of the poor, okay? So I don't want to see starving people. And I thought, okay, I don't want to see starving people. The government takes so much of my taxes, she sh the government should feed people. But we saw that when governments, no government in the Western world today is trying to feed people. Or it does it on a very, very, very small basis. And it does it through like uh, cash transfers or food stamps or stuff like that. A government doesn't produce tomatoes. And in the USSR, the government produced tomatoes. Mostly potatoes, not tomatoes, because it's Eastern Europe, but you get the, the point. And the free market system, mostly free market system in food across the world and in Israel, that ensures people eating to a much better than, degree than a public system does. I, I, would, I think it goes further than what you're suggesting. I think the issue isn't that no government, and maybe this is the, the communist still deep down in there inside you, but I think that no government... Even if it, it I, it's not the problem that no government uh, reallocates the money properly and feeds people. I'd say even if there was a perfect system that would reallocate the money and feed people, I think it ignores the basic, the much more fundamental properties of the human condition, which is the fact that when you get shit for free, you, you, you don't value it. Yeah. I think we should. We ran out of... Yeah, when, when, you get, when you get shit for free, you don't value it. And when you don't value something, then that that it it, it it screws with with your your with your with your system inside, and you don't end up. I don't know. You have to work for what you want. Okay, so so what what people on the left, let's call it, will say to you is, okay, you're absolutely right. That's why we need an inheritance tax of ninety nine percent. Okay, so why the son of Bill Gates 
has done nothing in his life to deserve even a tiny fraction of the wealth that Bill Gates has. Okay, so Bill Gates, okay, I get it. He's an entrepreneur. He created wealth. He created a lot of value for people. He's wealthy not because he schemed someone, though he probably schemed a few yeah. people, but because he created a, bun a, a whole lot of value. But his son, his son didn't do anything except being born. And like we said about Lenin, everybody was born. No, that, that's, not, that's not special. So, and there are a lot of people who, even if you give them a hundred dollars, that would mean so much to their standard of living, much more than if you would take one billion dollars from the son of Bill But Gates. then it's easy because if you say that you want to incentivize people to excel, then once you have a kid, that's one of your biggest incentives. So if you take that away, then Bill Gates maybe wouldn't exactly. ever it's come an, it, to become Bill Gates. It's an important point. Uh, I'm just like like all people. I'm just rehashing old points made by yeah. much smarter, older, mostly dead people than me. Um, and Milton Friedman had that exact point. He said, "We like to think, especially of America, as a very individualistic society, and that's true to a large degree. But societies across the world are families. They're the the main the main organizational unit, let's call it, are families. And one of the reasons that people go through hardships. I know if I don't know if uh, Bill Gates and uh, and Windows, but think about about people who uh, immigrate or immigrated in the 18th and ignore, 19th ignore century. It. Ignore it. Okay. People who went through a lot, they a lot of the reason they do it, they do it for their children and for their children's children and for the and for the generations to come, okay? The people that established the state of Israel and the people that established all countries it wasn't about okay I'm hope I'm gonna get mine in the next five years no it's gonna be for future generations so yeah if you if you stop the transmission of let's call it wealth across generations one of the things you're gonna find out is and that's a point made by leftist economist Larry Summers is that rich people uh, towards the end of their life what they're gonna do is they're just gonna donate a lot of money to let's call it political organizations which they like because they're going to tax the hell out of me anyway. And what you're going to get is an even worse incentive for a politicization of money and stuff like that. So you can say, yeah, the son of Bill Gates doesn't deserve all this wealth. But would Bill Gates have that wealth if he knew his son wasn't going to get it? And that's a good question. And again, that's a very famous Soviet joke. The communists were really angry at the Russian czar that he didn't leave enough wheat. Okay, That's not a problem in a free market. Because people produce wheat. But when you come to a peasant and tell him, okay, give me all your wheat, the next day, he's not going to produce any wheat. There's not going to be any left. Okay? So you... It was born out of a flawed system to begin with. What? Czar? No, I'm saying communism was born out of a flawed system. Communi Czarist Russia. The, 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 the premise of communism and socialism is just like I thought as a child. It was There's a lot of wealth... If we just change the distribution of wealth, we can still have the same amount of wealth and prosperity, but it's going to be more equal. What we found out in socialist and communist system, that the amount of wealth critically depends upon you redistributing it and to what degree. What I think the, so the Western European countries show is that you, do, you can have a lot of redistribution without a completely destroying the incentive for, for prosperity generation. I do think that a lot of countries are doing much more than what they need to do and they can do what and they can do what they do do 
Yeah. <laughs> in was... a much in a much in a much more in a much more efficient way, such as the school vouchers, registration zones. So you But don't... these countries pay a price for this this redistribution of wealth. There's a reason, I guess, why Apple and, and Microsoft and, and Google are not German companies. That's true. I think one of the things that a lot of, uh, a lot of socialists and communists miss about, about Western European countries is that for a, cer- at a certain degree, they are much more uh, stale and aristocratic than capitalist countries. So they would talk a lot about how much wealth the 500 most wealthy people in the states have as compared to the same measure in, in, in Sweden. But in the states, those people are they, they, they change. Okay. So it used to be all of these uh, energy and oil companies. None of them are there anymore, I think. And now it's all now I don't think Mark Zuckerberg came from rags to riches, yeah, but it wasn't he wasn't the son of a millionaire or a billionaire, okay? And in Sweden, what you see, Sweden, Germany, all these places, what you see is that the largest companies the most rich people, they're all companies old, old, old companies, which is okay. Experience means a lot, but IKEA, is, IKEA and Nokia, for example, are, are outliers. Nokia is an old company. Nokia and Nokia was also like uh, an old company. Uh, but created, uh, I think, uh, by Viking. Boots and I, I, toilet paper I think it was something to do with wood. One of, the mo- one of the most yeah. amazing things about Scandinavian country, an example of how you can say that they're much more capitalist than in, in Israel, for example, they have private farms for wood. Okay, so they grow trees. Just like you can grow mango, they grow trees and then they cut down those trees and sell lumber. In Israel, every time a tree is cut down, it's a public issue because yeah. everybody owns the trees. And when you do that, you do, you're doing deforestation. Mm-hmm. And of course, no one wants to plant any trees because it's not mine. I can't take care of it. I can't have any profit from it. And in Scandinavia, they fix the problem of deforestation and they use a lot of wood, a lot more than in Israel. So they have farms for wood it's like and and all of a sudden you have a lot of wood when you think about all the talks about deforestation in israel and brazil and stuff like that you always think about okay there's a certain amount of trees right Mm -hmm. and you don't want to cut down like a third of those trees where there's not gonna be any trees more it's it's like a fixed amount does anybody here know how trees work (laughs) because we're gonna be in a problem exactly the miracle the miracle of the profit motive and capitalism and free market is that suddenly you you understand that a lot of a lot of the things that you take for granted are produced and it's true you're not gonna have tree farms for 100 year old trees because that would take 100 years but just like you can have whiskey that is aged for 40 years you can even have trees which are aged five years ten years Redwood, darkwood, all these sorts of things that in Israel would be a public issue because everybody owns the woods. Just everybody for the sake the of, of example, if I now had a farm in the, I don't know, in the desert and I wanted to have a tree farm. Well, not in the desert, a cactus farm. Well, I think we're trees in the, in the, in the desert okay. now. But okay, in the north, I had a huge farm and I wanted to become a, a tree, a wood manufacturer uh could i even do that i don't know probably not i don't know i don't know if it's legal or not it might be that in israel it's also a case of just being highly economic and effective yeah so just like you're not gonna grow oranges in in sweden maybe you shouldn't grow trees in israel yeah because they take up a lot of water i don't know if you notice but the costs of water for example in las vegas 
which is very dry, very hot, is one of the lowest in the world. How so? It how should, come? Okay, so the cost is very high, but the price that the consumer pays is very low because it's subsidized. Oh, okay? okay. So what, does the, what that does is that a, a, a huge number of houses in Las Vegas have pools. That's the worst place you can have a pool in. I mean, it's the best <laughs> place for you to have a pool because it's so hot and you're going to be in the pool all day. But from an economic and environmental standpoint, that's a huge waste yeah, of resources. Of all the energy it takes to get all the water exactly. over there. And, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and that's the same thing for also, a Also, of... they always flush with the big handle. Yeah. Although in America, I guess yeah. it's not an issue like here. Exactly. Right. So uh, uh, when your father chases you around to turn off all the lights because it doesn't work for the electric company because uh, the employees of the electric My father company still get... does that. By the way, the, the cost, if you want to uh, calculate the cost of you having the light on all day, every day, for all year, I think it's something like five bucks, just so you know. Wow. In, so, in, thanks in, to capitalism. In Jewish but, but, families. But why would you do that if you don't need the light? Are, yeah. Five bucks why would are, you do that? Yeah. But if the price was zero, why wouldn't you turn it on all day? AKA the um, employees of the Israeli electric company exactly. it's, um, who get free electricity and uh, and famously they have like ACs everywhere like they have AC in the cupboard you know <laughs> they put ACs in the cupboard they put ACs everywhere yeah. there was a lot of land there still is but it, it used to be much worse um, there was a large system of subsidization uh, subsidies for agriculture in Israel for example and Agriculture, one of the things that it needs the most is water, a lot of water. It depends on the, on the product, of course, but a lot of water. So they would get water extremely cheaply, which was good for them, but you know, maybe not good for the entire economy. And one of the funniest things about it is if you go to these uh, areas today, which today they all, they're all trying to have it reallocated by the government to residential areas so they can build houses there because houses are much more valuable than tomatoes for a lot of reasons, especially with the housing prices we have today. And uh, for example, next to Kfarut, which is next to Modin, okay, like a tiny moshav, you have a car wash, an abandoned car wash. Why? Because the water costs nothing. What's the main cost of having a car wash? <laughs> so why is it abandoned because it's not they it's stopped. abandoned because the the system of subsidies changed for the better mm. it's still not a very good system not a free market system but what i'm saying is even if i me and a more leftist let's call it an economist disagree on should the government run and maybe even um distribute no um subsidize no lemamen <laughs> finance finance education for example mm -hmm. or primary education okay say we don't we might disagree on that but we have a public system the fact that we have a public system doesn't mean okay it's all great okay? there are a lot of things that you can do to make us the system much better for all of us and much more effective uh, at producing what we wanted to produce, even under the utopian vision of all of us, because we had government education, we, we're reading poetry all day, and we're we're very polite. Which, of course, in Israel, it's exactly the situation. Everybody's so polite here because of governmental education. And, Go to hell. And, and, and exactly, and <laughs> and Shaiganon. Wow, that was fascinating. Yeah, 
I mean, it, I don't think we challenged you much. Yeah. We said we would, but you know. Next time. We had uh, we had uh, I don't know if you know yeah, him, Doctor Ellie knows. Cook uh, on the podcast, <laughs> and that was that was uh, can, can much I, more contentious. Can, 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 can I can I can I have a bit of a plug-in? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So both uh, Doctor uh, Ellie Cook and uh, and me were both members of the Israeli uh, Association for Economic History. Okay. 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 Yeah, Economic History Association of Israel, which is the best association for uh, economic history in all of Israel. Number one, it's a group of academics and academic adi- adjacent, let's call it, so people who are interested in economic history, which brings together historians, Ali Cook is an historian, and uh, economists such as myself, where we study these uh, these issues. So, mm-hmm. like, it could be it could be something quite boring, such as what was the inflation rate at the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. which I think is quite a boring. But it can also be, uh, for instance, things like what's the long-term consequences of the Berlin Wall? Okay, so we know that East Germany and West Germany are very different even to this day, even though we're what, um, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a topic that brings together history, which is one of my pet peeves with economics, which is my profession and also one of my pet peeves. Um, and we don't spam. We have a Facebook page. We have uh, an annual conference, uh, which maybe the next one's going to be in Zoom. I hope not. Um, and you can hear both uh, staunch socialists and greedy capitalists, and none of them agree about anything except for the fact that this topic is very, very, very fascinating. So maybe you talked with Ellie about the whole role of slavery in the establishment of American capitalism. So we have people on both sides of the aisle uh, throwing rocks at each other about this topic, but this topic is is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So What so else do you co- want to plug? Like you're on social media, you have English articles. Um, so uh, I'm on Facebook at Ariel Kalinsky. I'm not on Twitter. I think Twitter is the worst thing to happen to humankind since socialism. <laughs> and As Ben Shapiro calls it a dumpster fire. <laughs> even on even on Facebook, you can't really have complex, nuanced uh, arguments and claims. And dumbing it down to 150 characters and I see a lot of very smart people trying all the shortcut shorthand they can do or they send me wow this is an amazing Twitter thread and it's like 20 messages but each of them is like one line long in order to have a, paragraph. a point of yeah. not not even a paragraph I, I, I refuse I, yeah. I really refuse so I'm on Facebook as, as Ariel Kalinsky and my wife and I have a blog unfortunately it's in Hebrew it, it's in Hebrew on purpose. It's called The Artist and the Merchant. And it's a blog about economics and with illustrations by my wife, who's an artist. And a lot of the things we, we discussed here and a lot of economic history I try to bring into the public domain in, in Hebrew. And a lot, of thing, a lot of it is also just translations. So I, I translate a lot of things from English because there's a lot of knowledge and information out there Mm-hmm. Also in other languages, such as German and French, but I don't know them. And I'm trying to bring it uh, to bring it to bring it to the public. I was just listening to a conversation between Gadi Taub and uh, what's his name? Uh, I forgot the, the doctor, but uh, he was talking about how Gadi Taub was mentioning that maybe that's you know we need government to subsidize things like translations or you know. And he said, um, 
you know, to, to subsidize culture. He said that it's a problem that in academia it's not really recognized as a valuable thing to translate works um, because there's so much that needs to be translated. Academia is generally uh, a system where a lot of the incentives are, uh, let's call it, misaligned. So the utopian vision of academia it produces knowledge and does basic scientific research and it's um, financed by the public or by the government because everybody gains from it, okay? Mm -hmm. Knowledge spreads, you get more knowledge, uh, which basically is, is true. I have a few caveats, but basically it's true. But there are a lot of things that uh, the academia incentivizes, especially in Israel. So Hebrew is a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of the scientific community. And basically when an economist, for example, works on something which is Israeli related, unless it's it's some prime example that you can publish in a high impact American economic journal. It's wasted money and energy working on it, and it takes a long time to work on an on an academic paper. And but the reason that academics in Israel, which like I said, except for the Ben Chumi, they are all publicly governmentally funded, is to have knowledge, especially in Israel. But the incentives are completely misaligned on that front. And translations, yes, it's extremely important. You don't want to have to rediscover everything all over again, okay? So imagine if we lived in a world where there was no communism in the past and we were just saying, huh, that's an interesting idea, let's try it out. <laughs> no, you need to translate knowledge either from the past or from other languages. Uh, I think an, an amazing... I don't know, guess you might have is Meir Litvak from uh, University of Tel Aviv. He's in uh, Middle Eastern Studies. And one of the most amazing, I was in a couple of lectures of him, and one of the most amazing things that he told me, uh, for example, was in 2006, the UN Agency for the Middle East, they have like a yearly report for what's going on in the Middle East. And when they say the Middle East, it's always without Israel, of course, just like Israel, the Euro Eurovision and UEFA and all those stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he talked about was was uh, was books and translations. So the number of books translated into Arabic, a huge language with hundreds of millions of people speaking it, annually, was less than the num is less than the number of books translated into Hebrew. Right? And that was in 2006. By the way, since then the annual report does not mention that st uh, that statistic, and it's not that it's not God updated. Forbid. Exactly. It's racist. It, it caused an uproar. It, caused, it caused a, a large uproar. What are you saying? And Arabs don't know how to read. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. What, what <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm just saying that's that's why it doesn't. You know, it's what racist. I, the state what, facts. What, what I'm what I'm saying is is uh, okay. Want to get we want to you want to get a bit a bit controversial, maybe anti uh, anti right wing a bit. Okay. What I see is a threatening strain in Israeli right wing thought is the thought that we know everything and there is nothing to learn from the Goim, okay? That's a huge mistake. A huge, 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 huge mistake. You, you see that as a strain of thought in right-wing yes. thinking? Yes, yes, yes. Really? It can, be, it can be from very religious people, which makes sense. It doesn't make sense in the scientific, when you think about scientific stuff. If you think about religiosity, okay, you go to Chazal and you go to Amoraim, you go to the Talmud. You don't go. You don't go to to Christians, even though Christians div, uh, uh, stem from a Jew. 
basically. A nice, a nice Jewish boy from, uh, from yeah. Natsrat, yes. Um, but I'm seeing it a lot in a lot of, a lot of uh, when you think about, I don't know, when you think about security, when you think about education, when you think about science, there's sort of like a move to our past. And I'm a conservative. I'm very, I'm very in favor of learning from our past and learning from the, from the founders and from our foremothers and forefathers. They had a lot of wisdom in what they said. And if you think you're going to rediscover everything on your own due to the power of your own mind, you're sadly mistaken. But one of the reasons for the primitiveness, relative primitiveness of the Arab world is that for centuries they have said, no, no, everything, everything is in the Quran. You, you, you should not, for example, study astronomy. That would be to, uh, to challenge Allah. Okay, it's a f- very famous co- quote where they destroyed the observatory in Istanbul in 1520-something. And the, the reason that they don't translate books is exactly because of that. It's corrupting influence from the West. Mm-hmm. Okay? So there might be corrupting influences. I'm not saying there aren't. But the reason that Israelis read a lot of translated stuff is because I think we understand, we know, mm-hmm. people have discovered very important things. Sadly, not all of them were Jewish, though a lot of them Most were. Most of them. <laughs> but, uh, with, economy, with economists, it's like also like 90%. It's very funny. Um, you can learn a lot. But we have Kahneman and... Tversky. Tversky are not economists, they're psychologists. Oh, uh, yeah. Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, Robert mm-hmm. Tuman, mm-hmm. Yeah. which you ha- also you had on the show, you said? Yes. Um, so there's a lot of things we can learn uh, from uh, stuff that people have already researched, have already done, have already written extensively on. Yeah. I know English, so I'm translating a lot of that thing, a lot of these into English. Um, but I'm also giving people um, stats, data about a bunch of stuff. Like I said, most of it is not in English. Um, okay. But I can do it in English. This was really fast. I think this was one of the longest uh, episodes we've recorded. Yeah, the longest is... one. Really? Yeah. How long? Almost an hour and a half. Nice. That means yeah. it was good. That means yeah. it was good. Yeah. So uh, thank you, you so you much for coming. You can edit out a lot of it. It's no, okay. no, no. It was interesting. It really was. I hope our listeners enjoy it. I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, thank you so much. So guys, check out Ariel Karlinski on Facebook. Yes. Before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. So go to jewishjournal.com to, uh, and just subscribe to their newsletter. Check out their podcasts. Just really do great it. stuff. Just do yes. it. <laughs> also. And also Israel National News, israelnationalnews.com. Avut Sheva here in Israel. You can check them out on Facebook or online. They're a, uh, uh, news source. They have a, their website is realnationalnews.com. It's in English, so check them out. And in Australia, the Australian Jewish News at ajn.timesofisrael.com for content and articles and news that regards the Jewish community in Australia. And we accept donations. Yes. So if you want to help us out, we do this on our free time to njb.com/slash donate. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye, Bye, guys.